welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, Skylar, for getting together with me and uh, looking forward to this conversation. I'll introduce you a little bit. You come from Iowa, mm-hmm. and you're, you've spent time in the Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. And I think you met my niece, was it in Thailand? I did, yeah. Thailand, okay. And now you're living in the St. Louis area. Yep. And then you have a, a Christian background. Yep. And what else would you say as far as just saying who Skylar is? Yeah, so I, I born and raised in Iowa and went to the University of Iowa and studied theater. So I have a big background in the arts. And uh, that was, from there, I went in the big move to Peace Corps um, in Thailand. And so um, very much, very much a Midwesterner uh, and very much an Iowan. Um, and then the real change for me came with Peace Corps. And now um, having met Cassidy and moving into St. Louis and, and kind of continuing to move in a, a different direction since Peace Corps. Um, yeah, that's kind of been, that's kind of been my trajectory, Iowa to now. <laughs> okay. As far as your trajectory now, where where Mm -hmm. do you think you're headed? Yeah. uh, Well, that's actually a really good question. I think think that's a challenging one uh, in the midst of uh, pandemic worlds, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, I know both Cassidy and I have ambitions to be abroad, to continue to do um, interesting things around the world. My personal goal and what I've grown to love is education. Right now, a lot of my time and energy is spent in working with kids. Um, something that I found that I really motivates me and, and is, is a drive for me is, is, is play and joy and, and, uh, and the ways in which that impacts not only adults, but specifically the way that impacts kids. Hmm. And so how I translated that from my theater background into where I am now with education um, is, is understanding that the same joys I found when I played in a, in a, in a black theater or um, in, a, in, a, in a class was the same joy I find when I do education with, with students now. Hmm. So I've realized my passion for education. I've realized the joy that I have in working with kids and seeing the, the eyes light up of kids. Um, I want to continue to work in that space. I think I want to work into... To um, education leadership, I want to work abroad uh, in developing um, uh, quality post-disaster education. Um, I'm going to be honest; Thailand wasn't that necessarily. Thailand is is well placed in in the world of um, low economic countries. Uh, that being said, um, I grew in in my understanding of just that the need in the world, that there are countries out there that are in conflict and struggling and challenged. Um, and I can see how, you know, how poor education can really, um, um, challenge a student when these students that are in crisis areas have no education. I can't imagine what it's like to ask them then when they get older to go back and lead their country someday. And so I feel called and a passion to go into those spaces potentially <laughs> but okay. obviously at this moment in life uh, there isn't much moving abroad happening right so not just teaching but like developing education in places where it's yeah. lacking huh 
Yeah, we, I think we value education um, well below anything else. And I understand, you know, there were issues that I experienced while in the Peace Corps about I'm wanting to give this educational experience to a student when they're still challenged with how do I make sure food and water are on the, you know, food and uh, good water, right? Healthy water is on the table. So we find that challenge. Um, it is, you know, basis of we need to get our fundamental needs and then beyond that, education. But we value education as, as a government entities so long, so much further in the process than we should, um, I personally believe. And I feel uh, if we really want to bring a country or bring people back into um, a positive light, it's with, with making sure they have an opportunity to learn and grow and, and play and, and find joy. Did you have a good educational experience growing up? You know, it's funny. So I, it's something that I've realized about kids is that and why I love kids so much is that we're so we are. I was thinking now about me as a child, but they're so adaptable. That me as a kid, um, I'm going to say my educational experience was not incredible by any means. I went to a very small school. I had 30 students that I graduated with. Um, my teachers that came to my school were usually first-time teachers that were just kind of jumping from this school to the next school. And so they were learning a lot. Thinking of me as my first time stepping into a classroom, I knew nothing about how to be a teacher. Um, and asking these teachers to then teach us was... Um, wasn't the most quality education. And so I think back to that and I realize what I did do as, an, as, as who I am was I took advantage of those opportunities and just continued to um, pull into uh, theater and sports and band and choir. So I was very involved. My education was, was um, yeah, it was something else, I guess. But I was always involved in everything I possibly could um, mm -hmm. within school. Overall... You had a good experience growing mm -hmm. in learning, going to school, and things like that growing up. Yeah, definitely. Supportive parents yeah. um, and all of that. It was wonderful. But uh, that's, again, what I love about kids is we're just, they're just adaptable. And they're able to take what their experiences give them and, and run with it. So are you, um, are you still involved in like, uh, education as far as learning and stuff like that? Definitely. I do... I was actually talking to Cassidy uh, <laughs> about that and how we both, um, in the midst of, you know, I think a value set of mine or a, a part of me is just a constant need to grow, a constant desire to grow as a person. So when I got home from traveling and from Peace Corps and the crisis happened, I was, I, I had nothing to do. And immediately I jumped into learning Spanish and I've been learning hmm. and I've been trying my best and putting in hours to try to learn Spanish. It's definitely a challenge. But yeah, that's just kind of my mindset is I'm not going to see this as an opportunity to watch more Netflix, but rather to <laughs> grow as a person in any way that I possibly can. And so that was one thing yeah. that I tried to do over the last three or four months is do some Spanish. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what about play? You mentioned play and education. What's the, why is that important? Yeah. Okay, so play. One thing that I always, uh, one thing that I learned in college is, or one class that I took was clown. And it was an incredible experience to, uh, <laughs> to glimpse into the world of being a child and having that childlike wonderment again, to being able to see the world uh, from a kid's eyes again 
where everything isn't just uh, isn't just not beautiful, but also incredible pain too. As a clown, and this is beyond the the idea of a um, a, a circus clown or even a, a birthday clown, right? This is a performance clown that actually um, has in mind set up behind it, not just blowing up balloons and making kids laugh. Um, there's a real beauty and simplicity to a clown where uh, if something hurts, it hurts. If something is happy or if something is joyful, it is joyful. They experience those emotions where we as adults, as we get older, we learn to censor that, right? We excuse a kid that just starts crying on a floor because he's a kid. He or she's a kid. But when you're an adult, if an adult starts crying on the floor, we question that and what's going on, right? So we, we start to censor ourselves and monitor ourselves as we get older. And that's a part of society. That's not something that we necessarily should condemn. But that understanding of what that means and when to utilize that ex- that experience and that understand that censoring isn't always the number one thing we need to do and rather being in touch with that and understanding and coming to terms with our emotions is super important as well. And so what play and what play allows for not only kids but for adults is it an opportunity for us to get in touch with who we are and what our emotions are, right? It's that opportunity to when I stub my toe to not just go, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, but rather, wow, that really hurt, and that really stinks, like, ow, and being okay with that emotion, uh, and then beyond that, when you're, when you're hurt because you were broken up with, or you're hurt because um, someone passed away, that, that pain is real, and that pain is important, um, and it's okay to have that. And not just to push that away all the time. And so those are the kinds of things that I feel play gives to kids. And especially in terms of crisis or in terms of abuse, these play, the idea of joy and the idea of, of giving them an opportunity to express and feel their emotions is so important and so valuable for a kid's life. So when you say play, are you talking about like tag and stuff like that or something different? Or yeah, of course. Okay. I mean, tag, um, but also just... I mean, reading and telling stories, right? I mean, the basis of, of communication is just our need to, to express ourselves, right? So um, forever we've been sharing stories with each other and kids do that naturally. They want to um, communicate and, and feed off each other and tell the story of, of shooting guns and, and running uh, uh, and jumping across the lava that well, is just a creek, you know? Mm-hmm. These ideas of... And then building upon that as, as and allowing kids to do that and to play with that is so valuable for them. And hmm. some kids, uh, especially like I witnessed that in Thailand and I'm not, yeah, I witnessed that in Thailand. Um, you know, some kids are expected to grow up so fast mm-hmm. and they don't have that opportunity to really understand how to express, express them, pro- express themselves properly and how to appreciate who they are and what their emotions are and how they should be interacting with the world. So growing up fast, you mean like bearing a lot of responsibility kind of before their time, so to speak? Definitely. Yeah. There are some students of mine that um, were helping raise, raise their, chil- their siblings. Um, it's funny when I think about the difference between an... Um, uh, I'm not going to generalize on the whole of America, nor am I going to generalize on the whole of Thailand. Um, but within my community in Thailand, uh, there were many students that were very functional as, as like by adult standards, they could do, they could cook their own food. They could do their own laundry. They were very capable as just kids. They didn't have 
teacher supervision when they played on the playground. And yet, uh, functionally as, as emotionally and, um, like cognitively problem solving was a really big challenge for a lot of my students and critical thinking was a really big challenge for my students being in touch with their emotions and, and kind of expressing themselves properly in, the, in a p- positive and an effective way is a really big challenge and I think vice versa within my community in Iowa I think we we baby our students in a way that we need to make sure they're supervised at all times and they can't play by themselves um, and and they and yet I didn't learn to do my laundry for a really long time and I didn't learn to cook for a really long time, you know. So there's just so many different challenges and different experiences for kids growing up and the way we, we parent them is, is and the way we teach them and grow and raise them is so interesting across the across the world. Are you familiar with Jordan Peterson? I am not. Oh, okay. He's got a book, Twelve Rules of Life. He's um Jordan Peterson, of course, Twelve Rules okay. of Life. Okay. <laughs> Jordan Peterson. And, um, okay, yep. <laughs> one of the chapters is um, don't interrupt kids when they're skateboarding. Um, like this one of the rules. And the, I, I think the idea is that um, kids need to risk and kind of uh, know their limitations. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they, that's just a part of growing up or something. And I was just reminded of it when you were talking yeah. about. Um, that type of stuff. Well, but. you have kids. You know more than I do. I just have kids tertiarily through the kids that I've taught. Mm-hmm. But it's so much of us doesn't want to see them ever hurt. <laughs> right. 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 I never wanted to see my kids hurt. But at the same time, I knew when I saw a kid crying because they fell on the ground, they would be okay, you know? Yeah. And they also learned a big lesson from that. Or like they learned something from that experience. Pain isn't necessarily always a terrible thing, mm-hmm. you know? How does um, play, um, it part, is, how is that a part of your life now for, for you? Are you involved in anything that you refer to as play? You know, it's something that I feel, I, at the end of the day, yes, of course, I teach students. And so this morning... I had this wonderful student. So I teach online um, Chinese students in, in, in China. Um, I teach online every morning. And I had this wonderful student who, um, <laughs> who loved batteries. He loves electronics. He's a little five-year-old student that speaks incredible English. And we're sitting there, you know, I'm sitting around my room trying to find electronics and we're, you know, playing with batteries and we're like chatting about batteries <laughs> and just having fun with it, you know? And, um, or I show him a bear and he's, or a teddy bear saying like, this is your prize or this is your toy that you won. And he said he doesn't like that. And so I have to find something else that he likes. You know, it's, it's being able to play off of the child and allowing them to kind of run it and then being comfortable. And like, that wasn't what I had planned, but knowing that that's okay and, and letting it run with it. Um, and finding the joy in that. It's so fun for me to not, for things to not go as planned, for things to kind of get chaotic and be crazy. Uh, that's a joy that that's an opportunity for me to smile and, 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 and experience life in a different and unique way than I had ex- intended it to be. Um, I think that's what kids and teaching gives me the opportunity to do like in theater did. It's that constant shift and change that gives me an opportunity to continue to see the world in a new way, in a new light. So I'm trying to, I'm 
kind of thinking, well, what is the definition of play? When you, it kind of comes right down to it, yeah. it sounds a little bit like it's kind of like exploring. Um, it's not like purposely trying to go somewhere, but kind of seeing where you go, perhaps. And what's it? And what's the opposite? Is the opposite of play work, or is it something else? Or what's how do you de- define play and just um, you know and respond to those things? Yeah, my my I tend to look at my my world as 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 a tightrope, um, and that we and that's maybe not a good analogy for this, but maybe because it actually goes against maybe other anal- other ways that I use it as an analogy, but if we hmm, maybe that's not the best analogy hmm so when I think about a tightrope right it's the staying on the middle we're kind of content maybe just a, like a bridge but on both sides we have all this exciting things happening um, and so for me that play is the opportunity to experience the world if we're just constantly there's, a, there's definitely a better analogy out there and I, I'll think of one for you later um it's an opportunity to experience the the extremities of life, right? The the intensity and the intense moments of life um, that kids naturally experience. They have to experience, right? When again, when uh, when they f- when they when their friend steals their toy, they feel that. When somebody steals something from us, we immediately push it down, right? Play gives us the opportunity to understand those emotions better, um, and so giving the kids the opportunity to play allows them to understand themselves better. Um, and so that the middle ground there is contentment for me. So I don't feel like it's, it's um, that there is an opposite to that. I feel like you, you have the opportunity to be on both sides and experience both of them. And then at times you're also sitting right in the middle of just being content. And many adults want to be there their whole life. Personally, and I, I can't condemn that, right? But personally, I want to hang out on those extremities. I want to understand, you know, it's, it's why I'm in a relationship. It's not because it, it keeps me content. It's because I get the opportunity to experience real, beautiful love and also intense pain, right? That person I'm trusting with the opportunity for her to hurt me in the same way I'm asking her to love me, which is an incredibly vulnerable thing that not everyone gets to experience. And so through those relationships, we, we avoid the contentment and choose the outskirts. And that's the same thing that I find in, lo- in play is, is the opportunity to live on the outskirts when the middle is um, kind of boring to me. It sounds, it's a good analogy, it sounds a little bit like Jordan Peterson, he speaks of order and chaos uh-huh. and how... Um, you don't want extreme order because that's like dead, and and then you don't want extreme chaos because um, we just we just we can't live there. Um, like even when kids are playing, they can play because they know. Well, hopefully they know they have some kind of security. Mm-hmm. If something happens, someone's going to help them. So there's like yeah. a foot in order, but then exploring into chaos is. Um, maybe another way to kind of think about play. The chaos is like the unknown, you know? Yeah. Um, and you can't have both, but you you um, you kind of like ride the line moving back and forth. Um, you were using the analogy of the line differently. You're, that was more like order, just strict order, I think, perhaps, the way you were thinking of it. Yeah. But, 
So, um, and in theater and stuff like that, I guess that's like an opportunity for quite a bit of play of just, you know, pr- pretending, exploring and stuff like that. Huh? Yeah, I, I see it when I was doing theater, right, as an actor. Um, I never, and this is, any, you you talk to anybody about their ideas of theater, but it was always, I was never trying to fool anyone that I was going to be um, Hamlet, right? I was never fooling you that I am Hamlet. I'm portraying Hamlet. I'm trying to be Hamlet. But what I'm actually doing is you as an audience member and me as Hamlet are having an opportunity to have an experience together. And so I'm engaging you and having an opportunity to play with you. And so it's not that I'm I'm asking you to sit there and, and watch me do Hamlet, but rather I'm asking you to engage me as Hamlet as we have an experience together trying to understand and grapple with this character. And so that's an opportunity to play together as an audience and, a, and a, as a as a actor. We could go on for a long time about theater and how I think theater is uh, in the audience's mindset is is kind of gone wrong, because um, I think it's so such that same idea of it's theater is not an opportunity to go and just relax for an evening. Theater is an opportunity to grow and engage in your your sense of play, mm-hmm. but also the 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 difficult parts of our life and, and really uh, seek to grow in that experience so <laughs> that's kind of interesting the, the, the part that the audience has um, and I've heard other people speak like that Yeah, there's a fellow called Juggling Jeff who was on my podcast. Oh, I love it. And you can only assume he's a juggler. <laughs> yeah, but he's also an actor. And he yeah. Has, and he's got like a routine. Uh-huh. And um, he talks a lot about the connection between him and the, um, the audience. Yeah. And um, whether they're honest or not, like in their response and so forth. And then Jordan Peterson, he even speaks about like or when he's speaking that there's that connection mm-hmm. and he's learning from his audience even as he's speaking to them so um, yeah um, is that um, yeah what more can you say about just the the particip- uh, the participation of the audience is that only in a live type of thing is it also like when we're watching a movie um, and what um what mindset should the audience have, you know, to properly participate? Yeah, I think there is maybe a clarification saying every art has its own intention, right? That um, the art that I was seeking to create because I was so frustrated with how many people just saw theater as an opportunity to relax. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, I wanted to startle and kind of move audiences into an, into a way that is, Oh, this is, I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to do something with this. You know, I wanted them to. To. I didn't. I didn't necessarily want to give them something, but I wanted them to experience something. One of the shows that I did was um, that I created with a couple of artists. We asked the audience um, to select their own seats within the space. It was a circular space, and they could select their own seats also to move throughout the space. Um, and then throughout the performance, we were also just talking to them, which was quite startling for the audience mm. and quite startling for us too. I remember the first time I did it, I, you know, happens a lot, but I forgot my lines for a moment. I was like, oh, right, I'm, I'm talking to you. Um, but it's because I want the audience to take ownership over that experience. Um, a play that I've always wanted to do was literally, 
this sounds this is going to sound really anarchist where just you go into a theater and you just sit and you just sit with the audience um, which sounds very I don't know ethereal but the point is I want the audience to walk out which sounds again so bad but I want the audience to not feel like they're compelled to stay there like they have to stay there American audiences are so polite at times um, if you think back to or if you know anything about Shakespeare times right Shakespeare the audiences were yelling at the characters right I want the audiences to yell at our characters. I want the audiences to care so much about uh, about Romeo not dying or Juliet not, you know, like I want that to matter to them. But right now they just sit and watch and just listen. And that just bothers me because that means we don't actually care about our art. Um, that being said, there are, I, I think movies do something that theater can't do, which is... I think, I think theater engages the imagination. Movies give us an opportunity to escape. Now, that doesn't say that both of them can't do the same thing. I think there are really great movies that engage the imagination in crazy ways, but there are also really great plays that let us escape. Um, but movies, unlike theater, allow us to see other worlds. Theater allows us to imagine other worlds. Hmm. And so I think there are different, those are two very different platforms for me both serving very important purposes in our, in our society. Um, but they're doing, I think very different things. Hmm. Okay. Um, are you involved in any kind of theater type of thing right now? Or do you plan to be? Um, I mean, when I was in Peace Corps, I did, I did a lot of theater with my students and then, okay. you know, the, the next thing I'll be doing with AmeriCorps, I obviously hope to be doing more theater. Yeah. I love to do that. Um, yeah. but I, nothing, nothing, no, like actual work. No, <laughs> me and Susan, um, we went away for a weekend. And we went up to Quincy, Illinois, which is just north, a couple hours on the Illinois side of the mm -hmm. Mississippi. Yeah, and they had a um, community theater, and we uh, we went. So it was neat. It kind of reminded you of like a high school production, mm -hmm. only it was like all age groups because it was community. Yeah, and the the they were doing. Um, I forgot. It's like, um, it was really abstract, and you'd understand if I could think of the title. Um, it's the story where there's like three or four witches who, which, um, what's, what's up, or something like that. Um, A Wrinkle in Time. That's okay. It. Have you ever read that? I have not. Okay. I'm bad, yeah. <laughs> so um, it's kind of like a fantasy yeah. uh, type of thing. So there was a lot of abstract type of. Uh, props and stuff yeah. like that to make it work, but it was neat. Um, and that just that it was a community production, you know. Definitely, yeah, yeah, community theater, and that's something that I accepted when I decided not to pursue theater in, as a career. Is that theater, community theater, and go out. Whoever listens to this podcast, go out and support community theaters, especially if they're opening now. Because um, these, yeah, these will be open all over the place and they're doing such great work. Some community theaters do better work than some professional theaters, genuinely. <laughs> yeah. um, don't discredit them. They're really great. Do you like Shakespeare? There's a Shakespeare festival in St. Louis yearly. I'm not, sh probably not this year, but. Yeah, I went to a show when I was here three years ago. I went oh, to one you? of them. Yep. Okay. I can't even remember which one it was, but yes, I've went to it. Okay. Yep. And do you enjoy Shakespeare? I do. I haven't okay. read a ton of it. I'm yeah. going to be honest, but I, I uh, had the opportunity to like teach some teach some Romeo and Juliet to some high schoolers. Uh, hmm. It's a really beautiful. Shakespeare is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. 
I have a hard time getting into it. The, <laughs> the, the language is like a barrier for me, uh-huh. understanding just what's being said. Now, when I go and watch it live, mm-hmm. that helps somewhat. Yeah. And I'd like to get more, I'd like to be able to enjoy it better. And yeah. I, it probably requires some work on my part just to learn that type of language, you know. Yeah. So what we taught in that class was that, and this, this, that experience right there is what so many of these right, ninth graders trying to learn, trying to read Romeo and Juliet are like, what is this? Right. What we taught them was Shakespeare did not write for people to read his work. People, Shakespeare wrote for people to speak his work. Right. Hmm. So when we started to say the words out loud and when we started to just kind of break down kind of what it's saying and then acted it out for them, they're like, wow. Right. Hmm. Shakespeare is, is so good. Mm-hmm at what he does for actors, not for readers. He doesn't care because he never, he never wrote it down in, in a book anyways. He wrote it mm-hmm. passage or word or line by line for the actors, mm-hmm. um, right? So these actors getting these words and using them in their, in their mouths to actually enunciate and create these stories mm-hmm. is what Shakespeare wrote it for. And so hmm. it's meant to be seen, not to be read. And that's what I think is so uh, scares people off from going to see it is because they're scared to read it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if I was to try to get more familiar with Shakespeare, maybe I would want to read it out loud rather than to read it silently if I'm just, it's just me in a book, then mm-hmm. huh? Okay. Yeah, and there's um, some really great, if you really like wanted to study, there's some really great dictionaries, like uh, hmm. books with the dictionary, okay. kind of, because there are a lot of words, not only that Shakespeare mm-hmm. has created, right? He just kind of creates words um, that have created, that have come into our language, Um but also just the challenge of this is an old language. And so yeah. it'll, it'll go through that. And that does take a little bit. But if you kind of go through and, and think about the words before you read the passage and then read the passage hmm. out, yeah, it becomes really incredible. I mean, I took a whole Shakespeare class and we spent whole, you know, hour and a half on, on just a, you know, a 50 line passage. And literally we drew on a board. This was in, um, I think it was in Macbeth, I believe. Um, went through the on the board, writing all around just how Shakespeare, with his words, within two lines, goes from earth to heaven and back down to to earth, down to hell, and kind of just creates this landscape with his words. And it, if you're just listening to it, you're not really picking up on that. But if you really sit down and look at it all, and then realize how how Shakespeare crafts this language, and then puts it into ten ten beat. Um, lines and then rhymes it. It's like it is mind blowing what he was ma- able to do. <laughs> mm, wow! You got a uh, you got a theater nerd talking. I apologize. <laughs> That's okay. Um, it's one of those things. Like I know there's something there yeah. to get out of it because so many people do. So many people <laughs> are really into Shakespeare. Uh-huh. So I don't want to just discount it because you know I haven't gotten that much out of it yet because yeah. I think there's something worth working at you know yep yep it's incredible well let's take um kind of like a a, a turn okay um you said you were interested in politics so like what um <laughs> it's awesome quite a turn huh <laughs> what um what uh why why are you interested in politics well that's a good question why um i think I mean, genuinely, what happened to me and my story is I went from 
a I grew up very conservative. My family was very conservative. Everyone around me in my hometown was conservative. And I went to one of the most liberal campuses in the country, uh, University of Iowa. And I really had an awakening to, um, to what my values were. Um, genuinely what changed it for me from conservative to who I am now was actually Bernie Sanders. And give me a second. I read an article, and this article is actually what changed it for me. It was comparing Bernie Sanders to John the Baptist. Um, and giving me an opportunity to see that, yes, we, I think we need to live in more of a middle ground. I, I'm, you know, I think so many people around the country would acknowledge that there are policies that exist better within the centrist world and, and understand that like, economically, fiscally, we need to have more conversations about how to create innovation. We can't just eliminate innovation in the way that we, we run, run our country. But um, at the end of the day, there's so much to be said about taking care of people and how do we best... Um, look out for others um, and pulling people pulling up pulling yourself up from your bootstraps is not a philosophy that I believe in anymore um, that I really think there are there are systems in place in our country that are um, hindering the opportunity of people which is what we want to give people we don't necessarily want to give we don't want to give people things we want to give people mm, we don't want to give money we don't want to give jobs but we want to give people opportunity and right. right now i think opportunity doesn't exist for everyone in our country and so that's where i started really becoming passionate is because i started to see the world in two different ways and started to, and tried to understand it um from those worlds and it was it's been incredibly interesting and um challenging yeah and i don't mean to bring up um Jordan Peterson so much, but he... He's a very interesting man. Yeah. Yeah. Very he, talented. He um, refers to... We're, we're not shooting like... I mean, shooting for equality of output or... I don't know if that's the phrase you use, but equality of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so we probably make a mistake when we want everyone to be like right on the same level. Mm-hmm. But there's... Um, but we, but yeah, everyone. Uh, we should all want um, everyone to have the opportunity for sure, right? And and um, and probably it's unrealistic to think that we can make that just totally equal. But we should shoot for that, you know. And where there's injustice, I think, as far as the opportunity um, and and so forth. And um, and then in our system, capitalism, mm-hmm. there's going to be, um, you know, just inherit to the system is going to be differences. Some people are going to do better and some people are going to do worse. But um, when that becomes an extreme, then that's, you know, that's not good for a society. Um, mm-hmm. It creates instability and so right. forth for everyone, you know. Yeah, and I think uh, better or worst is, is all in the eye of the beholder. I think we also as a country should evaluate how we value jobs and how we value livelihoods, right? That... I think people see the CEO of a company, and this is what an interesting moment in our in our current present state is, right? That CEOs um, actually become very undervalued at this moment, right? A lot of top employees are at home right now, and the people that we really need, the people that we truly value at this moment, are people that are making sure our grocery shelves are socked. And so, our idea about value uh, of people. And a value of jobs is different um, in this moment, and it should teach us something. Um, and I'm not saying that 
we should pay uh, a person that um, was just hired into um, work at a schnooks, the same as somebody who has worked their way up to become or work to build a company from the ground up. But um, we should acknowledge that some people really appreciate and, and love their position in whatever they do and in admiring that and appreciating that no matter where they are mm-hmm. um, and not undermining that by saying this job is better or this job is worse than that um, but giving everyone an opportunity to live a happy life in the pursuit of happiness um, whatever that may be people don't have the aspiration to become CEOs but they have an aspiration to live a happy life and giving people that opportunity is really important okay so um so you talked about like um, your own political philosophy or way of thinking, but you know it's changed over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, what is your? So, are you like a follower of Bernie Sanders? Then is that kind of like who you would identify with, or uh, at the moment I classify myself as a Democrat, but that's yeah. just because. I feel like the Republican Party has taken a really wild turn. And this sounds like a very generic response to that. But um, Bernie Sanders, I think, has has very... Uh, um, I, I, I honestly wouldn't want Bernie Sanders any more than I'd want any other president. I, I just think Bernie Sanders, at the time, was, was speaking the right words for me, that he was standing up for people, and that was very important to me. Um, people more than policy. I think people should uh, should come before the policies um, and come with the policies, right? So Bernie Sanders was was speaking my language at that time, um, mm-hmm. but now I I'm I'm just I'm just uh, standing by the Democratic Party until we start understanding more about what the Republican Party stands for, because I think the Republican Party stands for. Uh, who knows? I think it's it's very mixed and very disjointed right now, and mm-hmm. people don't know what to believe or what to think. So I'm not, you know, real knowledgeable on political things, but um, <laughs> when it... Um, I wouldn't argue, I don't know. I listen to a lot of politics. I'm not saying I'm no political major or anything or understand that, but yeah. I enjoy chatting about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Um, I guess, um, and can I just say one more thing about politics? Yeah. Where I am now actually is, and why it's weird that you're asking me questions is actually, that's something that I've come to realize is my role now, specifically as a white man, I feel, um, it is my role in our country to listen right now that my space, the spaces that I occupy are very um, comfortable for me. And so I'm very motivated to listen. So something I've been doing recently is exactly what you've been doing for the last year and a half with your podcast. Um, While I was home, I continued to see this guy uh, on Facebook, an old actual coach of mine, continued to post really aggressive political things um, that really didn't receive any feedback because in his political circles... Right, Facebook kind of creates these bubbles and these these feedback yeah. loops that kind of keep you motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't getting any pushback, and he wasn't also receiving any um, different ideas. He just just continued to stay within his space. And so all I did was just say, "Hey, can I, you know, can we grab a bite to eat and just have a conversation?" Um, 
And I did that with a couple, a couple people. And it was just an opportunity for me to genuinely listen. His political beliefs are so far from mine. Um, and he, he's about twice my age. Um, and something that I learned from that conversation um, that I want to like say to <laughs> maybe, I don't know. What was so challenging for me about that conversation was it became so much about him wanting to teach me something and not actually a, a, an engagement of ideas. And so, but in that moment, I knew it was my job not to tell him things because he wasn't ready to hear them, mm-hmm. right? He wasn't engaging with me as who I am and what I believed or who I was as a person. And so all I wanted, to, all he wanted to do me to do was to listen to him and hear his ideas. And so I kept listening to him. Mm-hmm. And so at the moment, I feel a lot of people are angry and a lot of people are hurt and a lot of people are scared. They're, those are the kind of the emotions that are happening and cursing through our country, especially mm-hmm. in the age of coronavirus, that I have the opportunity to just listen to that mm-hmm. um, and try my best to, to, to be, be a, a calm voice, a calm, a calm presence in the, in the, in the midst of that. Um, and so that's, that's been actually where I'm at politically is, is just continuing to understand because his views are so far from mine. And the fact that I've never really engaged with that conversation teaches me something about who I am, that I've, I am just like him circulating in my own little world here and not really engaging with um, all, of, all of what's happening in the world. Um, just as as you were speaking like throughout this um you know some things that just came to mind like um just you know as like a, a point for capitalism or that type of a system is that um in a lot of ways um like poverty is is better than it's um you know ever has been um child um Mortality has increased. Um, so this is something also Jordan Peterson brings up. That um, and Did you just read a book? <laughs> no, um, I don't know. It's just it seems uh, to fit with the conversation. Yeah, but, he's no, he's a brilliant man. Yeah, yeah. has a lot to say. He's but um, like the in some third world countries, I think uh-huh. he's referring to Africa, maybe. Yeah, um, child uh, mortality is at the level of where it was in England. You know, I forget how far, you know, 50 years ago or something, you know. So, like, everything has um, been moving up and um, capitalism is, um, you know, it's like uh, not a great system, um, but it's the alternatives seem like they have so much more problems with them. Mm -hmm. And, like, when I think of uh, socialism... um, I'm not saying that's what you're advocating for, but like that's kind of what I think of on the other side, um, like pretty left-leaning yeah. uh, side. Um, you know, I, I just we just got through. Uh, you know, I just think of the problems with that. Um, we just got through um, watching a movie called uh, Mr. Jones. Are you familiar with it? Mm-mm. Okay, so he he was a uh, this is a true story. He was uh, a fellow who. Um, went to um russia to um and he during the time of stalin and he um there the the reporters were all kind of held within moscow and um they were uh giving 
back um, to the press, real glowing um, uh, reports about the Soviet, you know, the communist experiment and so forth. And um, and he was kind of thinking things just don't add up, you know. And then he he was able to escape from the people watching him. He went to the Ukraine and he saw, you know, the devastation and everything. Uh, the famine that was pretty much um, Stalin's fault, you know. Um, and um, so it's, um, and he was able to get the message out, but no one wanted to hear it. Uh, for one thing, there was Hitler, you know, the far, far right, rising up, and they, they wanted someone to be against him, you know. So that was one motivation for not seeing... Um, the socialistic experiment, far left side, seeing the problems with it. And so some people were, it was just idealistic. And then um, for some pe- reporters, they were just being lavishly treated, wild, par- you know, extravagant parties and everything. So they were just happy to kind of go along with, you know, what was pleasing to the, um, you know, Moscow regime and so forth. Um, but like when we think of um, the far right, you know, no one um, will go by the title um, a Nazi. Like I'm yeah. part of the Nazi party, you know, because we we understand the problem with going so extreme mm-hmm. in one. But um, we do, we seem to not have that in our memory, you know, the the millions dead by going extreme the other way, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, anyway, that might not even be related to our conversation, well, but it's just... You know. My question comes in... I, I, well, maybe... I'm curious, what... Can you define capitalism for me? Or, like, what is... And my question generates from... I, I, don't, I don't necessarily see our system as, like, a pure system. Right. Do you know what I mean? So, like... And, and to that end... Does, so maybe Bernie Sanders did scare people away, but think about like Elizabeth Warren, who is very economically minded. She's very brilliant in the way that she communicates about economics. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a lot of very liberal policies, very arguably people would say socialist policies, but she also understands what innovation takes and how to create innovation within a system. Um, I think there can be both. Um, and so I guess our capitalist system does have socialist programs. So I, I guess my, my, my challenge there is like, we can't really be one thing and we're constantly melding and growing and moving. Uh-huh. Um, and so I, I don't know. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Right. It's not just purely one thing or the other. Yeah. Right. It's a it, mixture. It, and some things were happy for the, um, the government to be involved with we're yeah. we're happy with our highways right um, we have socialists i mean we have our schools are we we believe everybody should have the right to education um yeah. and so in that end you know i i constantly when it comes i mean we can go into a gamut of ideas but i don't know the perfect healthcare system but i don't understand the premise that we believe everyone deserves an education but not an ed- deserves an opportunity to health I'm not saying we need a socialist federal system of health, but 
we need to make sure that we are finding on either side, I don't care who you are, we need to find a way to make sure that people are covered. Um, it is incredibly challenging for me that as a young person who we need to consider my generation a little bit more in this conversation because a lot of us are either in debt from school or um, getting underpaying jobs, which creates under, underinsured or non-insured people, especially in the midst of a, a pandemic, right? So a lot of these issues are flaring up right now, and I respect that we don't want a federal health and health insurance, but we need to discuss the fact that a lot of us are in a lot of danger and a lot of very scary places that is going to create a very bad situation 20 to 30 years from now when you have a whole generation of, of people that weren't able to set themselves up as well as the current 50, 60, 70 year olds. Hmm. None of us are buying houses right now. None of us, I mean, that's not true, but a lot of us are not buying houses enough right now or not feeling comfortable buying houses or we're in a different place that we don't think that that's a value of ours. Mm-hmm. And so we, we got to understand that our gen, my generation and even younger than me are going to start thinking about things differently and we can't just exist in the same system that has always been there. We've got to learn how to, how to develop into a new way or develop into a new form. Um, and that's where that Republican-Democrat conversation is so important. I don't think we're going to... If Bernie Sanders... The fascinating thing about Bernie Sanders, if you look at the way he votes, he isn't just, I need all socialist programs. He does understand that small movement is important. So he will sometimes do a protest vote if he doesn't feel things go far enough. But he will also vote, yes, on things that he feels are important, even if he doesn't feel they go far enough, if he feels his vote is important. And so these people do understand, right, our, our... our politicians, to a certain extent, understand how um, how we need to continue to grow in a certain way, and they will vote in that way. Um, they're not just I need I need uh, socialist programs. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, one thing that's kind of an obstacle. Well, I don't look look into politics as much as I should because it uh-huh. is important. This is how we uh, govern ourselves. Yeah. Um, but one thing that kind of is like a roadblock uh, a obstacle to me would be more of the the democratic's um, view of abortion. Now, mm-hmm. on one on one hand, abortions seem to have been going down over the years and stuff, but it seems like still the the I guess the stance is um, you know pro-choice is a part of their their platform. Um, so do you have any, like, how is it for you? Um, is it not, um, well, well, how do you feel about the mm-hmm. pro-life, pro-choice? And, like, is that, um, you know, you feel comfortable making that compromise, if you feel it's a compromise, to vote uh, Democrat for um, other reasons and so forth? Or just what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, first, I want to preface... To anyone listening, we are two men <laughs> yeah. talking about abortion um, in, a, in a decision that I personally believe, um, yes, if I do have a, or I do have, if I get someone pregnant, right, if we are pregnant, um, that is a, a decision and a conversation. But at the end of the day, it is her decision. And so I will first and foremost start by asking her and talking to her because that is her body, that is her life, and that is her decision. Um, and so I am 
I am in conversation with her. That is my, that's where I stand. Um, and as far as I'm aware in the conversations that I've had with the women in my life, um, pro, you know, pro choice is, is priority in that, um, in that it is, it is their choice. Beyond that, I think you can be both. I don't think you have to be pro-choice and pro, or one or the other, right? Pro-choice and pro-life, it can't exist. You can give people their rights, which Republicans are very conscious of. They want people to have rights. You can give people their rights, but also encourage pro-life. The second part of that is I'm an advocate for women's health beyond and family health beyond, right? I have a big part of my life is going to be spent working with kids. I'm not saying I want you to have an abortion, but if you think about raising a child in a world that you can't do anything good for that child after that child is born, I can see why that decision may, may, may be made easier. And so I don't think the conversation ends at yes or no, should they have an abortion? I think the conversation ends at can they raise that child as well? We need to think about what does it mean to raise a child in America? Can these women... Do these women have the support and, and the encouragement they need to raise these children well? Because if you have a child and then the child is raised in a world that, that isn't um, positive, I mean, I can see why that, sh- that decision gets really challenging for many women. Yeah. And so I would love to see the conversation not go from, should they have an abortion or not, but go, how do we raise, how do we encourage women that when they, have, when they get pregnant, they don't think, should I have an abortion or not? They go... I can't wait to raise my child, right? That should be the first thought that comes to their mind. And until then, right? Like so many, think about the first thing that probably comes to, I mean, men and women, they go, oh my goodness, especially for my age, right? I have student loans. I I don't have a good enough job. I don't have any of this, right? Like raising a child, I mean, even if you have a good job is terrifying, right? But a a lot of people stop the conversation at abortion and don't really consider the fact that raising a child in this country can be really challenging and scary. And we need to consider more about family, um, family's health, family health. Yeah. <laughs> I don't um, know if that answered your question. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, I guess my thoughts are, um, I'm kind of, uh, I, I tend to be kind of a black and white thinker, I think. Yeah. And I think of, um, so the sanctity of human life. So we're not talking about, yeah, it's, it's her and her, it's her body, but um, we're talking about like a, a life, you know. Yeah. And there's um, a Roman, and I guess there's um, for some people, there's um, the thought: Well, when does it become a a human life that's just as human and just as like me or you? Um, you know, if, is it at conception or is it at some other point? And a Roman Catholic. Um, Kreef, I forgot his first name, um, Roman Catholic philosopher, he, um, he mentions, he refers to it like shooting in the dark. If you don't, um, you wouldn't shoot in the dark because if you don't know. So if there's an, like an unknown, um, you wouldn't, um, you know, so he relates that to abortion. And um, so I guess in that sense, I see it as more than... Um, just the, the woman and her rights. Now, I agree with you that um, we should care about um, um, her as far as, like, if she was to, um, you know, 
raised that ch- child and stuff like that. Um, but um, anyway, I guess that's just yeah. yeah. So I think I understand kind of your what your viewpoint is, and I guess that kind of summarizes my viewpoint somewhat. Yeah, yeah. It's an incredibly challenging conversation, and yeah. Again, I, I think it's super important that we continue to go back to the women in our lives and have conversations with them. Um, in any conversation that I think that's a huge issue in our country is we have so many men having conversations about women's issues and we're not opening that platform up to or you know we're talking about uh, you know any issue when it comes to a minority or a person uh, uh, you know I just I see I see the people within the executive office right now it's just a lot of white men and they are making and executing decisions on the public of people that don't look like them. And that is really scary to me, right? So when we have these conversations and when we make decisions, it it should be coming from a place of, of sympathy, if not empathy, right? That we need to understand that we aren't in those spaces and starting our conversations with those people that that, that decision truly impacts is so important. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so my opinion, I feel, matters a lot less than the women in my life. Okay. Yeah. I guess I, yeah, I think it's important to, you know, for women to be involved in this and, um, and they are, um, maybe not so much as policymakers, you know, as far as, um, but, um, but anyway, um, let's kind of, um, shift again before yes. uh, wrapping up to like um, kind of like foundational um, beliefs like for you um, what is this life all about uh, so I'll, I'll just put this out there and you can kind of take it where you want like or what's you know what's meaningful in life or what's it all about um, what is the um, so you're a theist you believe in, in yes. God um, just, you know, what's your, yeah, how, how would you answer that? What's your foundational beliefs if you could, uh, you know, just kind of put that in a... And the final question is, what is life? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we could talk about it for a while. It's not like, just say it and we're wrapping up. I'm just saying... In one word, what is life? Uh, <laughs> uh, so I grew up uh, in faith. And what happened to me growing up was I knew I never really questioned what I believed. I never had the opportunity to. I was constantly fed it. Um, and so when I went to college and I went into this liberal space and I had the opportunity to really question who I was and what I felt and what I believed, I had an opportunity to really explore that. And like so many Christians in my age group, so many of my friends, um, I have a friend that went, it was, it was a, such a fascinating story where she grew up Catholic and then she went to Spain for a year and saw the cathedrals thinking that and saw the Pope and thought she was going to have just this incredible experience and actually came to the realization about how much pain the Catholic Church has caused the world and has kind of her own awakening. Um, 
that was my experience. And I actually spent a summer in, in, uh, in a, at a church camp being very honest with the pastor going, hey, I'm just really trying to understand what it all means and who I am, what, what this, yeah, what, what I, how I should live my life because I'm, a fully, I'm fully aware that Jesus asks us to commit ourselves to him and that that is not to be taken lightly. And that is something that really needs to be um, an everyday, a conscious thought and conscious battle um, against everything else that happens in life. And so I don't take that commitment lightly. Um, that being said, it's really easy to ignore. <laughs> and I feel like that's... You mean ignore what the church has done as far as like... No, ignore ignore this call to Jesus. I see, okay. I think it's, it's so simple. I think the world has set up... I mean, we, we talk about distractions, right? The world has set up... How much can you hear me over the sirens? The world has set up distraction after distraction to keep us away from Jesus. And so, so much of my last uh, three or four years has been me fighting those distractions to try to understand who I am again. And, um, and I, 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 you know, hmm. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm just a, a, a struggling, terrible Christian that's just trying his hardest to, to be, um, to grow in my relationship with Jesus. There's a really interesting class that I took in college called, uh, how the brain works and why it doesn't. Hmm. And I think about this class often, not just from theater, but from where I am in my faith is that he explained that the way our brain works is we don't we don't have the ability to stop synapses from happening we have the ability to stop us from making those or we don't have the ability to stop like the the firing right like i have that impulse to grab my coffee i can stop that impulse from happening but i can't stop the impulse from being created Mm -hmm. right the impulse created and i can stop it so he prefaced or premised or he created this idea that or hypothesize that we don't have free will, but we have free won't. And the way I re- relate that into my, my faith is that God is constantly calling him to, us to him, that we can't stop that from happening. We can't stop, or we can't stop that call, like God is constantly calling us, but we can, we can stop us from choosing that, right? For me, I think that's what I've been doing for a long time, is I've continually stopped myself from moving closer to God so how is he calling you well he introduced me to this incredible woman um, that has set me up uh, in, su- in such amazing ways God I mean God continues to <laughs> he he is <laughs> my relationship with God is, is much more personal in the way that I can just say he just will not let me let me go <laughs> um that there's just constantly points in my life that continue to bring me back to him that I just can't, no matter how hard I try, I've tried, I can't ignore that he's there and I can't ignore that he continues to call me towards him. Um, and so it's a challenge because my girlfriend is much more 
secure and has much more of a foundation in her faith than what I do. And that's been a, a challenge in our relationship because, and I don't know, maybe I shouldn't get too personal in here. Um, <laughs> uh, because I'm still working through many things. I still have from my time in college where I asked so many questions. I still have a lot of those questions still sitting there with me. Um, and so I'm still working through those questions and yet still trying to build my faith and also trying to connect in my faith and build, grow in our faith together as a couple. And, and so there's, there's constantly challenges there and it's, it's going to be a lifelong journey, um, to understand what that, what, you know, my relationship with Jesus and how that, how that, how I can better dedicate myself to that and, and move in that in my everyday life. So, um, as far as God calling you, you see things in your life, um, and you attribute that to God having his hand on your life and bringing these things about through his providence or just through him, his involvement. And, um, so then, um, why, why Jesus? Like why, um, that, so I guess, and backing up, and that, um, I guess it's more intuitive to you that, or it seems from a, like an intuitive sense, like you feel this is God mm-hmm. rather than like someone who was just purely a naturalist or something. They would just say it's just the wonder of the universe, yeah. you know. Um, but I guess it's, is it, is that the reason why you attribute it to God? Is it more of um, just that kind of inner feeling like you know there's something behind all of this um, rather than just me being the top of an, this world or something like that or and, and maybe that's my challenge right there right I think I think I spent time in Thailand and learned about Buddhism and I was just blown away by it. And then I, um, I think what I grew in that was everything that I have learned in my, in my consciousness of like, you know, actually mentally, right? In my brain, I know this is what I believe. This is what I, I've read. This is what I know about my God. But then it's translating that from the the mental, ra- the like rational part of my brain to that part that actually builds relationships, which is the heart. And really understanding that to my core is that next part that I'm really trying to connect to. And it's conversations like this, right, that I have an opportunity to, to really build in that. And I think that's where I'm lacking is I come back and there's no churches open and I don't have an opportunity to really grow in my faith because I don't have an opportunity to, to communicate and, and really start to develop uh, an experience um, with him, um, with other people, an opportunity to see God through other people. Um, so I learned in theater that, and I learned through those experiences how powerful the heart is and without the heart, you really, you know, you can, you can tell people for days to believe something, but that, that's not going to impact them unless you really bake it to their heart. And right now, I need to translate every all that that stuff that I know God to be to the stuff that I feel God to be. Um, 
and and that's where that's where I think my disconnect is happening, and that's maybe what I'm feeling right now. Who knows what I'll do tomorrow? But that's that's what that's where you've got me. What impact did Buddhism make on you? Uh, what impact did Buddhism make on you? Just more so, you know, the, the, the religion itself is just fascinating in the way that they, um, the way that they communicated with each other about it. I, I don't know. I, I, find, I find there's a lot of similarities. They have this interesting, interesting take on, on heaven and hell, um, but then also this idea of karma. Uh, and so I found this, this weird amount of pressure, uh, to be something and to do something, um, which created the most kind culture you've, you'll ever have met in your life, right? Thailand, Thailand, they're known as, uh, the land of smiles. They're incredibly kind people, um, whether that's karma or not. And actually, once you get to know them, you realize they're just as beautifully flawed as everyone else in the world is, um, and also have aggression and angst and everything else that every other human does but on the on the surface they're always going to be kind to you um and, and they're I think predominantly buddhist and predominantly buddhist okay. the south is there are some communities that are purely muslim okay um and then some are half muslim half buddhist a lot in the north there's a lot of christian ministries or christian missionaries so there's a lot of christianity up in the north okay um, it's really interesting. Some some volunteers will move into these tribes where they think they're going to these unique experiences, and then they were introduced to Christian missionaries, and they're kind of getting this unique tribal Northern Thai tribal experience, you know, Northern tribe hill tribe experience, but also experiencing Christian beliefs and values and morals, and it's just this weird kind of uh, dichotomy that they can't quite place in their brain. So. Um, yeah, it was it was a fascinating experience. That's all I can say. I, I was I learned a lot about who I was through them and through I learned a lot about like to expand my imagination about what who I am and my own idea of culture and identity and 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 um, that is an, and continue to inform my path to God for sure. So in Thailand, is there are they theists? Like I've I've heard that Buddhism might be theist or it might not be it might be more like a philosophy of life or something like that or you know I'm, I'm going to be honest I'm not going to probably speak too much for Buddhism here's okay. what I do know there are multiple multiple uh, like sects of Buddhism okay um, I had always assumed that it was more of a, a like a like a, a, a philosophy of life and not so much like a religion mm-hmm. in that you your your goal is to cre- get to a sense of Buddhism, right? Or to get a sense of, of, of peace and a sense of person, right? That you become um, like Buddha, right? And in order to do that, you have to you have to erase, uh, right? Erase feelings, erase you know, and and try to get to just an inner peace. But then they have heaven and hell, and they have karma, and they have all this uh, extra stuff involved in it. And so I think it's taken forms. And you know what's fascinating is, you know, every, every, the, the schools there are all Buddhist, right? They, they have Buddhist events. They have um, uh, uh, monks come in and do events for their schools. Um, I ask teachers about what they're doing or what these things mean and all that, and they don't really know all the time. So... 
there's a lot of, I think, ignorance to what it all means too within, within their own culture because it's just become a part of everything in everyday life is they go to the temple to do this. They go to um, the school and they have the monks do this. And so it's a really interesting and unique space. But that being said, you know, there is Thai Buddhism and then there's Chinese Buddhism and there's Japanese Buddhism. And so to kind of peg them as a certain thing mm-hmm. is, um, is kind of complicated. In the same way, telling me that Lutheran, Catholic, and Methodist and Baptist are all the same thing, um, right? Close, yeah. maybe. <laughs> yeah, they have um, some foundational things that yeah. are the same for them all. Um, so, so your back background is Christianity. So, uh-huh. in other words, Jesus. So is there, um, um, I don't know, do you have anything, any thoughts about um, why, why Jesus? Um, is it, um, or what, you know, what does that mean to you? Is it, um, yeah, I, I guess that's the question, yeah. <laughs> um, I yeah, so you said just in, in basic when it comes to your relationship with God, uh-huh. you have all of that stuff you were taught, uh-huh. but it's like you're still working through the process of it, um, and you want it to be more encompassing, like a heart type of knowledge yeah. as well. Um, so, um, to that end, I... that. That idea of karma that was in Buddhism, mm-hmm. I think that's when I really started to understand the, the the purity and the joy that comes with Christianity and that what Jesus offers that other religions don't. Um, that also makes it so profound and makes it something that if I, I think I think something that turned me away from Christianity initially was Christianity, not so much Jesus, right? That Christianity does some really awful things, um, but Jesus doesn't. I think Jesus is a such has such profound um, right the ways the ways in which he. Uh, interacted with the world when he was on this earth right that taught us so much about the ways that we should interact with the world does not speak to anything else that happens in our in our world at the moment right that the ways that jesus has asked us to interact with our worlds um my girlfriend asked me to listen to a really beautiful podcast um and it was it was a sermon by a woman and her her talking about i can't even remember the verse um, but it was some like law that was created at that time that basically said, if you do this, you become, I will treat you like, a uh, a tax, a tax, uh, hmm. tax collector, a tax collector, okay. <laughs> um, a tax collector or, a, or I don't know, a tax collector. Right. And she's like, well, don't make that out to be a bad thing. Remember that Jesus, how did Jesus treat the tax collectors? You know, mm-hmm. Jesus didn't treat anyone different than, than the next one. Right. Like 
I think that is beyond powerful and profound in the ways and the way that God is and Jesus has asked us to act in our world. And I can't and why yeah, that's that's my, my reason is like that that's all up here. And then knowing that internally is, is my next challenge, right? Like I I have the belief. It it's it's there. And now internalizing that and understanding that all those things that I just said in my heart and, and bringing that down is, is my next challenge. But um, Christianity is, is incredible. It's profound. It's, it's nothing like um, we see. It's a remarkable, a remarkable, um, a, mar- a remarkable thing on the earth that we, we don't understand or we, we don't have any, in any other space. Yeah. And, um, kind of like order chaos type of thing again, (laughs) you know, you have that in Jesus, like a full bodied, I mean, um, he's sometimes referred to as the archetypical man. Um, like everything, um, you can like, uh, as high as the imagination can go, um, it can't go beyond him, you know, just complete in that sense. But, um, you know, he's the lion and the lamb. Like, the lion as far as, like, order, perfect righteousness, justice, and then the lamb as in sacrifice and vulnerable and uh, giving and, you know, just these two things embodied into one. Yeah, and that that was something that really started to shake me was... um, and it's been a while since I've communicated about this, so I don't know how far I can go with you, but I think for a long time I was so mad because I didn't understand God's justice because I just was asking for love and I like wasn't understanding the complexity of it that God can equally be loving but also seek justice and justice can sometimes be, you know, like why is there so much pain on the earth? On the earth is... is, is um, and, and how God seeks to correct that is just remarkable. Um, yeah, it's been a while. I need to go back and read those books. But I, I find Cassidy to be just a, a remarkable human being in the way that she allows justice to play such a huge role in her everyday life and in her, in her, in her, in her calling in life. Um, hmm. She continues to um, empower me and um, inspire me in the way that she moves through her world. Uh, through the world to to seek justice in the way that God has asked us to do. Yeah. Um, So I'm kind of in the same place as you are similar in that I want um, the the gospel, as I put it, you know, to have more of a heart effect, a life-changing effect on me. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um, and in the gospel, I'm, I'm thinking, what I'm thinking of is like the good news of Jesus, um, you know, saying God's kingdom has come, you know, get on board, um, follow me, um, and him providing everything that's needed, like um, providing an atonement so that I'm received as a son, Mm -hmm. and then providing uh, God's spirit so that, um, you know, I have that heart for him, and it's not just a head type of thing, and well... These things, um, I think, should have like a heart-changing impact on us, because, um, like, 
laws don't, I mean, rules uh, can be oppressive. Um, we, they don't, t- uh, you know, when we're just given the law, sometimes that just builds up guilt, not like a heart change where we want to follow with a willing heart, but free forgiveness and love, uh, you know, when we, uh, even in the acknowledgement that we're unworthy and that we're, um, uh, you know, we've fallen so short and we've just totally messed it up and we're just in a mess and yet we're just forgiven. And Mm -hmm. it's not like just brushed aside. It took suffering and, you know, Mm -hmm. to, to bring that about. That's like the heart type of change that I would like to be more impacted by so that it's not just in the head. So I've been thinking about that lately, about how to, um, so what I do, you know? Yeah. Um, it sounded, for you, like maybe that would come through interaction with other people, and maybe there's something to that. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, um, I'm trying to um, take like a, a verse from... Um, you know, the New Testament. I've been reading in the Ode a lot, which has been really helpful for me, but I'm kind of realizing I need to take something from the <laughs> New and that just points to the, the good news and um, just kind of have one verse that I just meditate on throughout the week and think of it in its context. And um, anyway, that's kind of my approach. But yeah, what, um, what are you... Um, doing as far as like um, is there anything you're actively doing for that to become more of a heart type of thing for you um, or what's your approach you know in that yeah um, uh, <laughs> so I'm I'm continuing to challenge myself you know I I do advocate for that growth mentality that I'm constantly trying to grow. That is one thing that I do struggle with in this. I think it's incredibly vulnerable and maybe shameful uh, for me at times because I know how far I've strayed and also maybe a fear. I don't, you know, there's, there's so much involved in it that it's so vulnerable. Um, and I think that's what's continuing. And so this, the reason these, this, you know, this is why we need these conversations right here is because it's, it's God telling me I need to start, you know, and like I need to continue, right? It's me, it's being told these things to go, how do I? Um, so that, that is what I'm, I need to continue to do is that, that reach into that vulnerability reach into the because right now I sit in the middle I'm sitting in that contentment right I believe but I don't really I, 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 and I have these things up here but I haven't really worked towards that part of it where I have to be vulnerable and try to connect them where I have to come to terms with certain parts of it that are going to be hard and I have to um, understand different new parts of me that I didn't know existed and then come to terms with how I'm going to confront those and you know there's so much involved in that process for me that I'm like just maybe avoiding and I'm scared to approach um, and so I need to start having conversations okay you got me <laughs> um, with the um, 
You said you had a funny story about Meetup. Do you want to tell that on the air? Oh, or no. I, I mean, oh. it's not that funny of a story. I just, okay. you, you said Meetup, and I, right. um, I moved to this new city, and I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I want to make friends. And I started learning Spanish, yeah. and I looked at Meetup, and I was like, oh, there's a Spanish group meeting. And so every Tuesday at 6 o'clock, they were meeting at a Caldi's. Is that what it's called? Caldi's Coffee? Yeah. And I said, okay, I'm going to go and put myself out there and be vulnerable and, and try to meet people. I show up and they weren't there. Oh, and wow. it was so disappointing. And I messaged them. I'm like, hey, is there a meetup tonight? And they didn't respond. Hmm. And so in the midst of COVID, um, don't move to a new city and try to make some new friends because it's going to be very challenging. But yeah. <laughs> that's mm. my experience with meetup yeah. <laughs> and my failed attempt to make friends. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I guess we'll wrap up. It's been really good talking with you, and you're really good at expressing yourself, so I appreciate that. I'm amazed at my guest sometimes, because <laughs> I just ask questions, and um, and they just have all these words to just express things so well, and, and you do as well, so I well, appreciate Will, that. Well, I want to say you're an incredible listener, and I really appreciate you, I mean, not only doing this podcast, but also um, just being willing to engage in conversation with such a kind and uh, gentle heart. I really appreciate you. Well, thanks. Mm-hmm. If you use a podcast app like iTunes, please give a review of Conversations About Life.